Well, in just a few short weeks, uh, the Olympic Games will open. Uh, and all around the world, regular people like you and I will tune in to watch elite athletes compete in their fields. When that happens, uh, many of us will think about what it takes to get to the Olympics, right? And so uh, I did some Google searches, and from what I can gather, uh, the average Olympic athlete trains anywhere from four to eight hours a day for five to six days a week for the better part of the four-year Olympic cycle. And here I thought, you know, 20 to 30 minutes a day that uh, most of us do was pretty good, right? These guys train four to eight hours a day for five to six days a week for four years. That's not unheard of for professional athletes, right? But the thing is, the vast majority of these Olympians will not be paid by the IOC or have any kind of sponsorship deal to help them with costs. The vast majority of these dedicated men and women pay for their own entry fees into Olympic qualifying events. Uh, They pay for their own equipment, travel, on and on. Not only that, but they put their professional and personal lives on hold. They go to bed early instead of hanging out late with family and friends. They leave so much behind in dedicated pursuit of their goal. Following Jesus is a lot like training for the Olympics. Pastor Dan said it so well last week as he concluded his message with this, following Jesus isn't always easy, but it's always worth it. This morning, we're going to continue on in our series in Mark, and we're going to open up to Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 45. And in it, we're going to see two important questions and a shocking prediction sandwiched in the middle as the disciples and the crowds wrestle with what it means to follow Jesus. So, if you haven't already, would you open to Mark chapter 10, verses 17 uh, to 45? It's in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. If you're using a digital version, I'm preaching from the CSB, the Christian Standard, but you're welcome to use whatever translation you want. Uh, if you open the Version Bible app uh, under the Events tab, we also have uh, sermon notes there uh, if you want to use those. So Mark chapter 10, uh, we'll start with verses 17 to 31. It says this, As he, that is Jesus, was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud and honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these from my youth. Looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go and sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But he was dismayed by this demand, and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astonished at his words. Again, Jesus said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished, saying to one another, saying to one another Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With man it is impossible but not with God, because all things are possible with God. 
Peter began to tell him, Look, we have left everything and followed you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not, who will not receive a hundred times more. Now, at this time, houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Our first question this morning is this, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This man comes to Jesus as he's setting out, calling him good teacher, and asks him this whopper of a question, right? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, Jesus initially sidesteps and does this sort of puzzling thing where he says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And then he lays out that the man must uphold the law perfectly in order to inherit eternal life. Well, why the sidestep? What is Jesus doing here? The man comes to Jesus and calls him good teacher. And certainly, Jesus would have been renowned in the area as, uh, at this point, as an outstanding teacher, right? He drew crowds like no one had seen, and he did all sorts of signs and wonders, and he taught with authority, and he went toe-to-toe even with the teachers and the top experts of the law, like the Pharisees, as we saw last week, and he put them in their place. There is no doubt that Jesus taught well, right? But this man needed to realize that only God is good before he could engage with the question that he asked. As he's about to see, no man, no matter the level of piety, can ever be good enough. No one is good except God alone, Jesus says. And then he lays out the law related to the Old Testament and the Ten Commandments, right? Uh, To this man, he says, do not murder, do not commit adultery, steal, bear false witness, or defraud, and positively, honor your father and mother. In order to inherit eternal life, you must do all these things, Jesus says. Well, no big deal, right? It's, It's just child's play to uphold the entirety of the Old Testament law. Uh, Your average Joe would have walked away realizing there's no chance. There's no chance for me. I I just can't do it. This guy, though, he says, all these things I have kept from my youth. Nothing in the text indicates that he's being arrogant or conceited or pretentious in that statement. I think it's very possible and even likely that this man had been striving since childhood to live in such a way that he would be able to earn an inheritance in heaven. His question as he sees Jesus is deeper and more important. It's a deeper and more important question than anyone else has asked to this point in Mark's gospel, right? And it shows his heart. Nobody else has been concerned with what's going to come quite like this guy has. Picture him with me. He's this young boy in his youth devoted to upholding the pharisaical law, making sure he does everything he can to follow all of the ins and outs of what he's been taught because he's obsessed with getting it right, right? Dedication like an Olympian. Still, he's doing all this, but he feels like something is missing inside. And so along comes this one who teaches with authority like nobody had ever heard before, and he has FaceTime with him. What does he ask? What does, he ask? does he ask, heal me like others have? Does he say, give me something? No, 
He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I don't think he's arrogant. I think he's sincere. He's worked his whole life to uphold the law, and he's been as successful from an outward perspective as anyone could be. But Jesus sees what's inside, and he knows what's inside, and so he looks upon him with love, and he says, go, sell all you have, and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Again, this might sound like a trap or some sort of setup from Jesus, but it's not. It says Jesus looked upon this man with love, and then he told him exactly what he needed to do. He gave him the answer to his question, sell everything you have, give it away, and follow me. The man goes away grieving because the cost for him was too high. He was a wealthy man. Friends, Upholding the law without following Jesus is worthless. Upholding the law as this man did from an outward perspective without following Jesus is worthless. The man's response to Jesus' call to sell all he had exposed his idolatrous heart. He upheld these laws as well as anyone could have. He worked so hard at it, but possessions and wealth still sat on the throne of his heart. When we read these stories, I think sometimes it's hard for us to understand how this guy didn't immediately comply. Right from the mouth of Jesus, he got the answer to this question that he had for his whole life. Just sell your possessions, and instead of worshiping them, follow me. Just worship me. Believe in me. Trust in me for your security in this life and the next. If you just do that, if you just believe and follow me, your quest For the answer to this question will be realized. You will inherit eternal life. It's so simple. But he doesn't. He doesn't do it. He walks away because the cost is too high. Following Jesus is hard. It's hard. Jesus expands on this teachable moment with his disciples who are astonished by what he's saying. In verses 23 to 25, he says how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Children, again, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples' minds are blown at this, right? It's easier for the largest animal in their whole region to go through the eye of a needle. If that's true, then who can be saved? Who could be saved? If, if even this guy, who worked so hard and did so much to uphold the law, can't get in, It's impossible. It's got to be impossible. There's no way we're making it in. Well, Jesus responds. He says, with man, it is impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. In other words, you're right. You lack what it takes to be saved. You lack what it takes to be saved, but God doesn't. All things are possible with him. That's a harsh reality and an unpopular one, right? It's kind of a slap in the face. You lack what it takes to be saved. You lack what it takes to be saved. People all around uh, the world are wrestling with the question that the rich man asked, right? We've been wrestling it with, with it for centuries. People in this room this morning and watching online are wrestling with this question, asking, what do I have to do to be saved? We answer it 
in all sorts of ways, right? But usually it boils down to be a good person, whatever that might mean to you. There are some hot-button ways to be a good person right now. You have to care about this group or that group, or you have to fight for this cause or for that one. You've got to be kind to your neighbors or uh, to your coworkers at work, right? The bare minimum uh, is usually something like, don't be the worst person you know, right? Because that way you can always point at somebody else and say, well, at least I'm not as bad as them, so they're probably not getting in, but I, I think I probably will. Right? If you asked a dozen people on the streets how to get to heaven, you're likely to get a dozen different answers. Do you know what Jesus says to all of those responses except for one? He says, you lack what it takes to be saved. You lack what it takes to be saved. It doesn't matter if you're the kindest person you know. It doesn't matter if you're the most generous, if you read your Bible more than anyone, or if you pray more than anyone in the history of humanity has. If you're not following Jesus, if you haven't confessed him as Lord of your life and left behind all that you have for the sake of following him, it's worthless. It's worthless. Upholding the law without following Jesus is worthless. You cannot earn your way to salvation. But if you do, if you do confess him as Lord and follow Jesus, it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you grew up in the church or it's your first time here or your first time tuning in. It doesn't matter if your life has been marked by outward piety or total active rebellion. If you just place your trust in Jesus and follow him, eternal life is yours. It's yours. Not only that, but in verses 29 to 31, we see this picture of an amazing reality in this life and the next. When we leave earthly comfort and assurance behind, Jesus says homes and families and fields to follow him, we receive back in this life a hundred times what we leave behind and eternal life in the age to come. See, when we enter into this relationship with Jesus, uh, we gain a community of believers, a new family brothers and sisters in Christ, access to homes and resources and relationships that we've never had. But the cost is high, right? It's high. And many who are first, Jesus says, who are wealthy and well-off and high in status and stature will be last. And those who come as little children with nothing but total dependence on Christ, the last by the world's standards, they will be first. One commentator described verse 31 like this. He says, its simplicity, that is this statement that the first will be last and the last first, captures a profound irony of discipleship. The kingdom of God topples our cherished priorities and demands of disciples new ones. It takes from those who follow Jesus things they would keep and gives to them things they could not imagine. Those who take their stand on their riches, whatever they be, will have nothing to stand on. Those who give up everything, not only possessions, but even people and places, indeed their own lives, to follow Jesus will not simply be compensated for their sacrifices, but surfeited a hundred times over with the same and in the world to come with eternal life. I want to pause for a second and challenge believers who call Crossview Church their home with a question. Are we a community and a family who reflect the promise that Jesus makes in these verses? Do we reflect what Jesus 
says here. Or, more personally, are you someone who welcomes new Christians with open arms? When people come to faith in Christ in our community in Wisconsin Rapids and in the surrounding towns, do they gain family by coming here? I'm not asking these questions to uh, indict or accuse you, but just think about it. Just think about it. Is this a place where new believers can cash in this promise of Jesus? A promise of a new family, of new resources for life, of new people and a new support system to rely on when they're struggling? This promise from Jesus doesn't leave room for us to be some sort of holy huddle of believers who only, sing, who only hang with brothers and sisters we've had for a long time. What a disaster it would be, right, if parents brought home a new baby and the older siblings all ignored her, pretended that she wasn't there because she was new and unfamiliar and maybe smelled a little weird. Let's be a church. We got to be a church that reflects this promise of Jesus, a place where people can come as they are and be welcomed as they are, where people can expect to be spurred on in their faith and challenged to follow Jesus more closely in the family that is theirs and that's been promised by Jesus. Question number one, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Answer, follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. Let's look now to verses 32 to 34. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were astonished, but those who followed him were afraid. Taking the twelve aside again, he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And he will rise after three days. Jesus takes the disciples aside and gives them a shocking prediction, right? They had just resumed their journey on the road towards Jerusalem, and for the third time, he tells his disciples that when they arrive in Jerusalem, he's going to be handed over and killed. Of course, we who know the rest of the story know that it plays out exactly like he predicts. He's handed over, condemned, mocked, spit on, flogged, killed, and he rises in glory after three days. But even after hearing it for the third time, you can imagine the disciples sitting there afterwards considering, well, how might things play out when we get there? As they approach Jerusalem again, uh, the twelve are faced with a challenge. Would they continue to follow Jesus knowing that they were headed towards his death? Well, question two quickly emerges as the disciples engage with what Jesus just said. Let's look at verses 35 and 36. James and John that's two of the disciples, uh, the sons of Zebedee approached him and said, teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask you. What do you want me to do for you? He asked them. What do you want me to do for you? Question number two. These two had just heard with the other disciples what was coming and they approached Jesus with this crazy bold statement, right? We want you to do whatever we ask of you. Imagine going to Jesus himself, the son of man, uh, the Son of God, God incarnate, and saying, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Jesus responds kindly. He says, what do you want me to do for you? The answer to that question reveals our hearts, doesn't it? If Jesus were to ask us how we think through a response to that reveals our 
hearts, and certainly it reveals the heart of James and John. We might expect the following verses to say that they asked for something like this. Give us the courage to stand with you. Or give us the chance to suffer at your side. Give us the strength to endure alongside you. Use us however you see fit for the sake of your glory and the gospel. It'd be cool if the disciples asked that, but they don't. Instead, it goes on and says, They answered him, Allow us to sit at your right and your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or to be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We are able, they told him. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. Jesus called them over and said to them, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high position act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. James and John think that they're asking for something noble, and maybe hidden in their question is some positive thing, right? A desire to follow Jesus even in his death. But what they ask for primarily is glory in eternity as they sit alongside Jesus. Their response to his prediction of his death, burial, and resurrection is to try and grab onto some of his glory for themselves and to secure a position of honor at his right and his left. Jesus responds to them by telling them they don't know what they're asking, and of course they don't, right? James and John think that they can take on what Jesus is about to, and uh, Jesus affirms in some ways that they will drink from the cup and be baptized with the same baptism. James and John would suffer for their faith. James would ultimately be beheaded, right? And they're willing to bear that cost for the glory of sitting at Jesus' sides. But the thing is, Jesus isn't just going to die on that cross. He's not just going to suffer at the hands of men. The disciples would all share in that portion, certainly. They would all suffer at the hands of men. But verse 45 is critical in understanding what was about to happen. It says, Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus would hang on that cross and bear the wrath of God for every sin ever committed by all of humanity, past, present, and future. The cup that he would drink from is incomprehensible. We can't begin to understand the length that he would go to to save humanity. Jesus had modeled and would continue to model to the disciples a way of life that is contrary to anything they had known. Greatness is achieved not in being served, not in securing high positions and using your authority and throwing around your weight and demanding a place of glory. No, greatness is achieved in servanthood. 
Greatness is achieved in servanthood. Jesus is God incarnate, right? He was present and active in creation in Genesis 1. All creation cries out to this day, day and night, in praise of his glory. And he came to serve. He came to serve. He didn't sit on his throne and demand that we just do whatever he wants and do his bidding, right? He descended to our level and led the way in servanthood. He poured out his time on earth to serve, and ultimately he poured out his life as an act of service to us. And so his call to you and I is to serve to serve, not to use our positions of authority to demand our rights or to make sure we get what we're owed. His charge is to pour our lives out as he did for the sake of his kingdom and his glory. And Jesus deserves all the glory. He deserves all the glory. We're super quick to think highly of ourselves when we do some good stuff, right? We're, we're quick to expect some sort of blessing or praise from God when we do things right. When we read our Bibles consistently or when we pray or when we do those things, we start thinking that we're hot stuff. And don't get me wrong, God loves to pour out blessings on us constantly. It brings him great joy to do that, but we don't deserve a single ounce of it. We don't deserve to taste eternal life. We lack what it takes to be saved. We lack anything good, but Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many. And because of what he was headed to do on the cross, we can be covered by his grace and his mercy and we can be restored to the Father and we can be made new and transformed in the image of his Son. And because of what he's done, we are granted new life. Jesus came to serve and he is worthy of our worship and of giving up whatever it takes to follow after him. It's worth giving up whatever it takes to follow after Jesus. Following Jesus is hard, but it's always worth it. Before we transition into worshiping in communion, I want to offer you three takeaways this morning. First, if you're wrestling with that question that the rich young ruler asked, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Turn to Jesus for salvation. Turn to Jesus. You can keep looking, you can keep comparing yourself to others. You can keep trying to do good enough to make it to heaven. You can even do some good things. You can pour out your life in service to others and helping the poor and the marginalized and working to restore broken people to wholeness. But apart from placing your trust in Jesus Christ, you will not inherit eternal life. But if you follow him, if you turn to him for salvation, you will experience life in eternity that is beyond your wildest imagination. Second, believer, consider how the position you've been placed in can be used to serve for the sake of his glory. Consider where God has positioned you in this season of life. Maybe you're a stay-at-home parent. Maybe you're the new guy at work, or maybe you're the head of your department. Maybe work is behind you and you're retired with time on your hands. Wherever you are in between all of those things, think about this. How can you use your position, not for your own glory and your own advancement, but to point others to the one who paid their ransom? Finally, number three, take some time this week to reflect on the cup 
that Jesus drank to purchase your salvation and let it drive you to a place of awe and worship. Open up your Bibles and sit with verses 33 and 34 and listen to how Jesus loves you. He went with joy to the cross to pay the penalty for your sins and mine. We're going to get a chance to do number three right now as we take communion together. So as we turn to the table, as Trevor said, we have three simple instructions here at Crossview. First, we practice open communion. That just means you don't need to be a member of Crossview Church. You just need to be a member of the body of Christ. Having confessed him, you're following after him with your life. Second, parents, we recognize that you are the spiritual leaders of your family. And so if you feel that your child has made that confession and is following Jesus, you're welcome to serve communion to them. And finally, we'll take the elements together here in just a moment. Jesus went to the cross as a ransom for many. He was condemned by God's chosen people in the chief priests and the scribes, and then he was handed over to the Gentiles, and they mocked him, spit on him, flogged him, and killed him. He did all of that to satisfy the wrath of the Father so that you and I would be set free from the penalty and power of sin in our lives, and so that our relationship to the Father could be restored if we would just turn to Jesus and repent and believe. It's an amazing truth that we've been washed by the blood of Jesus, and we've been set free by what he accomplished on the cross, and that's what we're celebrating in communion this morning. So before we take the bread and the juice, let's go before the Father now, and I'd encourage you to confess any sin that the Spirit brings to mind, and then praise him for what he's done on your behalf. Heavenly Father, your word says that as often as we take this meal together, you pro- we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so again, Lord, we proclaim your death until, we, until you come. And the promise that comes with that, that when we come confessing sin, Lord, you separate it from us as far as the east is from the west, that you're faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we cling to that promise this morning. We ask that you would use this bread and this juice to remind us of the broken body and shed blood of Jesus that were spilled out on our behalf. Lord, would you be worshiped in our taking of this meal together? We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll start with the bread. Scripture says, on the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the cup. In the same way also he took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it 
in remembrance of me. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we praise you for sending Jesus to the cross on our behalf. We're so grateful that when we place our trust in him, we are forgiven and free. We need your help to follow you more closely, and we need your help to see the ways that you want us to serve those around us. And so would you stir in us a desire to follow you, even when it isn't easy? Would you give us a deep commitment to serving those around us and to pointing them to salvation in your son, Jesus? We desperately need your help with these things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.